Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm excited to let you know that the second annual online near-death experience summit is coming up this June 23rd with speakers Dr. Raymond Moody, Lisa Smart, Dr. Jeffrey Long, Dr. Eben Alexander, Karen Newell, Nancy Rines, Howard Storm, Paul Perry, David Ditchfield, Leslie Lupo, Kimberly Clark Sharp, Dr. Tony Chicoria, John Burke, Jose Hernandez, and me, your host. There are plenty of videos to check out ahead of time, but please look at this link and we'd love to have you join. You can get your questions answered by the speakers at this event. And thank you. Thank you so much for your support of my memoir, Angels in the OR, which launched last month. It is such a pleasure to connect with readers and many people have enjoyed the Audible. So if you don't have an Audible subscription, you can have three, 30 days um, for free and get my book that way. But I would love to hear from you and I hope you enjoyed this recording. You can check out these interviews on my YouTube channel. I'm converting many of them over to podcast, but enjoy. Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm here with Brother Ed Salisbury, and I am so excited to talk about not one, not two, but three near-death experiences that he has had. And as I was thinking about that, I've only had one, and I can imagine that, and that one just transformed my life, because I think the difference between not having one and then having one is really profound. You just look at the world differently. I'm really curious how the second one was for you. So if you could just kind of jump in and tell me what it was like to have another one. Thank you, Trish. It's a real pleasure and honor to be with you. And to answer the question of a second near-death experience came to me as unexpectedly as the first one did. And it gave me at least a sense of how there's a message when we realize we're not this physical body. And then you may remember, and it's commonly saying that, you know, my first near-death experience was when I crashed my car into a tree, the typical traditional, went through a tunnel into a light, met angels, guardian. The, the guy I prayed to as an altar boy, Jesus, welcomed me and told me to go sit on God's lap. So I had this profound near-death experience where I had an intimate connection with Creator and then a life review. The second time it happened, I actually drowned in a swimming pool. But I should explain that between the first and the second, I had married the sweetheart that I was always eager to know. And we had created a, a whole new lifestyle and I was, you know, a tech guru in networking before there was an internet in Houston and she had drowned in a boating accident when we were out in Corpus Christi Bay. And I, rem I remember a little bit of your story. There was a lot of deep grief and anger around that. I think I remember you talking about how you wished it had been you instead of her. You're, you're very true and right on purpose in that I had, I was unable to save her when the boat jibed and hit, the boom hit her in the head and knocked her overboard. Now I live with that grief and that comes out often as I share it with others. I need to breathe right now. But I came to the surface when I couldn't bring her to the surface and I screamed at God, it was not right. It should have been me, I know how to do this not her. And what followed were many, many months of, you know, in a limbo in, in negotiating and complaining. And then I was visiting my cousins in California, actually North San Francisco Bay in Tiburon, where they have a nice house and a pool out back. And it was when I had gone away from the crowd and the loud family members and partying people because I had been, you know, 
there is they were trying to buoy up my grief, but I wanted to be alone, so I was in, in the slide going back into the pool, as I had done many times earlier that day. And I leaned back in the pool slide, head first, going down, watching the stars up above, when I hit the water and all of a sudden twisted my neck and sank to the bottom. I found myself looking at my body from above. Did and you break having, your neck at that point? It wasn't a broken neck. It was just a snap and a gulp. And instead of inhaling air, I inhaled water. Mm -hmm. I sank to the bottom. And then this, this second view, I actually watched my body as I went up and up and up into the air. I could see the neighbor's house and the cars. I could see the whole Bay Area. Then I could see the curvature of the earth. Instead of going into the light, I backed my way into the light. Hmm. And that was totally different from your first near-death experience, which was... I guess, shocking, perhaps. It, uh, you know, we all struggle to find ways to communicate the profound and phenomenal nature of a near-death experience. The best analogy I have is when I was driving down the interstate, you know, at 50 miles an hour on five lanes of traffic when a front tire went bam and blew out. Up to that point, I was trying to adjust the radio to get my right radio station. I was thinking about where I was going. I was watching the traffic come behind me. I had my mind through full of a lot of things. But when that bam hit, our attention goes right to the point, oh my God, what is this? What's happening? And then it was total focus. And my focus was on where am I going? What's happening? I think you remember in the first case when I crashed my car into a tree, I was stunned as if a swinging door had hit me in the back. And as I tried to gather my senses, I looked down and there was my automobile crashed into a tree burning and a body slumped over the wheel. When I had that experience, I looked down and I said, oh, Good Lord, that looks like my car. And then I zoomed in and I said, that looks like my body. If that's my body, then gosh, who am I? And this realization, I think, is something the near-death experience brings to the point more than any other teachings that I've had or messages that have come to me that we are not simply this body this is a vehicle and we have this vehicle to experience and express the joy and delight of the physical universe and i'm off that, track no 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 and that is a major part of most near-death experiences even if they don't go to the light or see angels or have you know a profound one like you and i have had just that realization of looking at the body even in an out-of-body experience i think gives people that moment of oh oh there is something to me there is a consciousness that survives this body and you never look at it the same way because you know that there's this essential part of you that is much greater and much grander and much more connected to the universal flow of love and intelligence than what we're housed in. And I think what near, and this is my belief, and maybe you believe this too, but what a lot of near-death experiencers feel is also this kind of disappointment that we're limited at times when we come back to the body by the pain, the emotional well-being that we were in at that point, you know, our, our intelligence, whatever it is, our, our life situations, we're a little disappointed. So yeah, good points though. But I do want to bring you back to the second one, and then I want to hear your first one. But in that second near-death experience, as you were pulled up, did you recognize it? Did you go, okay, this is what I experienced the first time, or was it totally different? It was momentary questioning about what happened here. And then I had this, oh, here we go again. Oh. Here we go. 
there's my body at the pool. Wow, there's the planet. And I love the imagery we see from rockets taking off from the earth, going into the sky and into orbit or to the moon. That was my experience of watching my body below and backing my way through, through not only the earth, but the solar system into the stars. And then I found myself turning around in that white light to be met by my grandfather. Hmm. The first image, the first interaction with another being of light was that my father's father, whom I had always loved and always uh, enjoyed delighting in connecting with him. And of course, there he is, is robust and as young and vital as the day he got off the train coming to Houston when I was a young boy and he jumped off the train. He said, Eddie, my boy, there you are. <laughs> and again, in this near death experiences, Eddie, I need you to tell your dad not to take life so seriously. And it was like, Whoa, you want me to tell my master and commander, my dad, who was, you know, the sir, the, the Navy captain in the house, that I have a message from his dad. But once I got over the fact that that was his wishes, then I said, I'll do that. How did that turn out? Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people need to take life a lot less seriously. And I think that's a great message. But did he, yeah. did he accept it? Well, it took me a while to get, build up the courage and find the right setting. And it, I, I had mentioned it to him, you know, about how I had had this encounter. And he says, well, yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, you could, I'm sure you were hallucinating. Mm. And it was like, oh, mm. what a disappointment. However, when toward the end of his life, when I had come back, to live, to help him with his cancer and, you know, be the nurse that I trained to be in California. I was taking care of him and he grabbed me by the arm one day and he looked me in the eyes and he said, son, thank you. You did it right. Oh. Ah. Hmm. Have, that, have that acknowledgement, you know, after years of, almost decades of being the, the the wayward son who became a California hippie and disappointed the company, <laughs> the family. Now, was the near-death experience part of that reason? <laughs> because you were connected to, you know, a consciousness beyond yourself. And that, that first one occurred when you were how old? I was 26 years old. Yeah. I had finished military. I'd finished college. I was working in corporate America as a, a golden boy doing technology and computer systems for the Coca-Cola company in Atlanta. Hmm. So riding around in my red firebird convertible, I was convinced I was God's gift to women. <laughs> it's funny how that first near-death experience changes everything we view about ourselves. It really, in a sense, matured me because, you know, I was 22 and I had a lot of immature mindsets at that age in Austin. And I mean, the biggest shift was a lot of my friends were a lot older than me immediately after that because they were the only people who got me. Did you find yeah. after that first near-death experience a huge shift in your friendships? It was slow in coming. This was back, you know, date myself here. This was back in 69 and 70. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was um, enthralled with this lady and ready to marry her. And as I came out of the experience, and it took two weeks to come out of a coma, and it was five years and seven major surgeries putting my body back together and in and out of the hospital, in and out of 
looking for and trying to make sense of all this. At the time when I tried to tell my doctors, they said, oh, it must have been, you know, hallucinations. You know, you were on a lot of drugs at the time. So that kind of disappointed me. When I went to my minister, he says, that's the work of the devil. I would never talk about it again. Oh, that is disappointing. I felt like I was rejected and abandoned, but I kept searching and started with finding an Edgar Casey study group and then finding, are you familiar with Ekin Carr and the out-of-body experiences, the Monroe Institute? Oh, and yes. Yeah. We've, we thirst for finding other venues, if you would, where that wisdom of the Holy Spirit can be manifested and explained. Yes, beautiful. All right, so I'm going to go chronological now, and I'm going to let you just tell your first near-death experience story, because uh, that is, I, it sounds so beautiful to me, and uh, I think you like going to that one. Um, so you were looking at your body after that massive car wreck and and you pulled away what happened next in that first one as you said as i was looking down and saying there's my body if that's my body then who am i and in that instant i found myself my consciousness picked up like a piece of dust into a vacuum hose i went shoom and I went flying through the stars. Now, remember, I've been you know, trained as an ocean navigator reading the stars, but I went into the heavens and beyond galaxies and into different dimensions. When all of a sudden I found myself surrounded by this wonderful, loving, bright light. I use the example, if you ever remember, coming out of a movie house in the middle of the afternoon and like, whoa, you were surrounded by the light. But this was more like a time when I was cold to the bone after working in the rain and it was freezing and it took me hours to finally get back home and I went into a hot bathtub. If you can remember that, ah that kind of surrounding white light of love and support and taking away both my physical pains and my mental anxieties. After a time, and in these experiences, I find we step out of the dimension of time. Yes. And here I was in this space, in this place. And of course I had finished college with degrees in mathematics. Logic and physics were my majors, and as a Virgo, I'm very analytical. So here I am in this space, and I wonder, ask, where am I? And it's like walking into the National Library of Congress. If you've ever walked in there, this is this immense you know, multi-story domed opening space with millions of books around you. Well, here I am in this white light asking questions about where am I? And as soon as I would ask a question, it was like a book would open and there was the answer. And then, you know, why, why did this happen to me? And even that's, like that's I was unusual. asking... That's unusual. I have, um, I felt answers kind of like enter me like a wave of energy and so you literally saw like a book open and the answer like you had specific questions and then you get specific answers in that way i was why was i born to this family Hmm. what what happened to christianity uh, in constantinople all of these things that had always troubled me there was clear Obvious, I want to call it concrete, but it's more than concrete. The Akashic records of all, the database of all knowledge. This was before Google, but it was real. So why did you pick that family? Did you get that answer? 
the answers came very clear and apparent, but when we come back, a lot of them don't come back with us. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> it's like, damn it, I knew that answer. Now why can't I access that in my brain? And this happens even today. However, there was that comforting of saying, oh, oh, it is the way it should be. It is in divine order. It's okay for me to accept that as it is. Carolyn Myths tries in Sacred Contracts, and I've read other different books, they try to talk about why we choose different parents. And I, I, if I remember correctly from that book, she said you want to take the best qualities from these two people and expand on them. So there's something within you that allows you to pull from their best qualities. And, and that kind of resonated with me. I love the stories my wife says because Cheryl's had three near-death experiences and she's even had pre-birth awareness. Interesting. She speaks about how, like others, we consciously look at different family dynamics and say, oh man, I could enter that family. Look at all of the challenges I could experience and grow from. Yes, I might not be wanted. Yes, I might be abused. Yes, you know, I might even be wounded. And that's where we grow. Like a pearl is nothing but an irritating grain of sand in the oyster. There are, you know, pearls waiting for us to experience as we accept the trials and tribulations of our life and make the best of it. You inter I was in the middle of in this yes, one. Yes, 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 I don't, I don't mean to, uh, <laughs> to no, stop. No, I love going thing. into These these. are just interesting questions. And I know people hear certain things. They're like, wait, I want to know what happened to Christianity in Constantinople. Wait, why are we, why are we in this family? <laughs> so, yes, so you... You were in this white light and receiving answers, and what happened next? After saturating myself with every doubt, fear, question, concern that I ever had, it was like, whoa, okay. Then this figure coalesced out of this light, and it was sort of like, and I love Star Trek and the transporter rooms, because here's this, and this light all seemed to come together. And there in front of me was who I had prayed to as an altar boy growing up. There was Jesus, the Christ one. And he was standing there with beautiful eyes, radiating a joy and a happiness like newborn babies. Hmm. With wisdom, you know, of, the, of all antiquity. And he was there, and he was kind of like, hey, there you are, both hands up. And he reaches out to me, and he says, come, we've been waiting for you. And did you feel like a kid? Did you feel loved like a child? Oh, it was like, you're real. It's you. And, and it was like, yes, I'm always with you. And then in a loving direction, he puts his left hand up, and he points up to this being this person sitting up in a, I want to say, throne, was a grandfather, godfather figure, God himself. God, as I could accept and understand him, was sitting there looking directly at me, patting his left thigh and waving, come, come. So you saw God as a figure. I did. Interesting. Most people see a light and they don't see, you know, God as an actual figure. To the degree that we can accept. And I love the wisdom of that, as you believe, so you receive. And, you know, there was this figure, it looked like, you know, Moses in the movies or this loving grandfather God waving to me to come sit. For the first time in all of this experience, I became self-conscious. Hmm. By that I mean I was so focused on what was going on in front of me and around me and 
here was all this opportunity and activity. And I was like riding on the front of the roller coaster. But when I get invited to sit in his lap, I said, whoa, you don't mean me. And then the next instant in his lap. Yes. That's that's interesting that you said like a rocket at one point and a roller coaster at another point. I felt a lot of joy. And I hear this in some near-death experiencers, but it was like a fantastic ride <laughs> to be out mm. of the body. You know, I was like, mm -hmm. woo, this is so much fun. Here I am flying across the night sky. You know, what comes next? Like it was exciting to me. So that's interesting that you you put it that way. And that that moment was the first moment where you felt emotion. I guess in a different in a heart centered way is that what you're saying or no no really what I'm trying to express here and describe is the fact that I shifted hmm. from looking at what's going on out there to what's going go what's happening in here hmm. it's like you want me hmm. like uh oh you know really uh, you see children waiting their turn to sit in Santa's lap. Yes. It's their time. No, no, not me. <laughs> well, it was, that was almost my experience as well. It's like, you want me? Oh. And it was like, I hesitated. And in the next instant, I'm in his lap. I'm sitting there and his left knee thigh with his arm around my back and him gazing down into my eyes with such power and beauty and love love that's yeah, more than the sum of the joy i've had with embracing others and holding my children and grandchildren and seeing the the gushing grace of a loving child is, is and, and today I, as a grandfather and great-grandfather, I take such joy in having my children come sit in my eyes. And I always love whispering, forever and ever, I'll always love you. Mm. That was the message he gave me. That's the one I give you and everyone seeing this video. Forever and ever, he will and does always love us. And I say he because that's just how I hold it. But God will show up in whatever form we will accept. He, her. I believe that. And I think that, you know, it's too difficult to explain our past histories and what we need in that moment. But we need to feel loved and we need to know that love. And so I think God shows up in a way that shows us that we're protected, we're loved, we are more than we thought we, we're loved way more than we ever thought we could be loved. Like we can't even, even fathom the extent of that love. And when we come back with words, I think this is where every near-death experiencer breaks down. Like, how do you describe it? How can you describe a, life, a love that is infinite and powerful and more than a love for a child or a grandchild or all of humanity, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's overwhelming. Amen to that. It is impossible and yet so profoundly wonderful that we can't stop trying to communicating to communicate it and express it. And that's really why I, um, reach out and do what I can, you know, in sharing the message and supporting communities like INs and others. Yeah. I'd like to continue with oh, where yeah. I... And please do, and I'm going to take my headphones off just for a minute and shut this door, um, but I can still hear you, so keep Very going. Good. Okay. My experience sitting in God's lap was having this beautiful smile continually shower love and grace on me. And then he reached down or pointed down to his feet and said, are you through? And 
And I was like, what? And he says, well, there, are you through? And of course, for me, it was difficult to look away from his loving gaze, but it was a loving command. So I looked down at his feet. And there were images as if I had dropped an old photograph album and all these pictures were scattered at my feet. Hmm. And I would look down and there was experiences of my life, memories. And in the old days, you used to send your, your film out to be developed and it would come back a few days later and you'd look at it. And you could remember where you were, what it was like when you took that picture. Here I am looking down at memories and I was a little, a young boy, maybe five or seven, and I was stealing Coke bottles from the neighbor's garage so that I could sell them and go to the movies. <laughs> Uh-oh, <laughs> what, was, what was God's point? <laughs> well, here, now, not only did I remember it, I relived it. I, rem I was back there. I was doing all I could to pick up these bottles, smelling the musty smell in that garage, hearing the clanking bottles, and finding myself walk down the alley, coming to the inn, saying to myself, thank God nobody saw me. <laughs> and no sooner had I completed that recall then I realized I'm in his lap and I look up with, oh my God, you were there. I'm a bad boy. I'm so sorry. Uh, I was just consumed with guilt, shame. And the response was one that blew me away. He kind of grinned and winked and he says, there are consequences for everything you do. It's neither bad nor good in the greater sense. It's a lesson for the learning. Are you through? And I, I, don't, I can't tell you how long I sat trying to grok that, to embrace or absorb that, because... You know, I I learned that uh, in in my church growing up that John, God was a judging God and you'll pay for every sin. And instead there was this loving forgiveness and acceptance and lesson. And I said, wow. And then looking back and like, whoa. And I kept recalling things and forging my mother's signature on report cards so I didn't have to admit I didn't do as well as I was supposed to. I teased this girl and it was seventh grade. She spoke with a lisp and I teased her. I was back in that classroom pretending she stick in her tongue together and then turning around to the bullies in the back of the room to make sure they knew I could be as mean as they are. But then I experienced how she felt. I was in her being. I even experienced her going home and torturing her cat. Wow. Because that was, that was her reaction of she experienced pain and so she wanted to give it to another being. The ripples mm. of our actions. Hmm ripples throughout the universe and I was so ashamed and felt that you know, like I wanted to beat myself and I turned to God and the response was again well there are consequences you see I love you are you through and again, it took me a while to kind of like, whoa, man, I am really learning something here and feeling things I didn't want to feel. But then I said, oh, there was a day I saved this girl's life at the beach in Freeport, Texas, because I went out when she was drowning. I brought her to shore. I gave mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. 
you know, what they taught me in Boy Scouts. And I, I remember her belching all of that seaweed in my face. And, but then the folks patted me on the back and they were so proud and she was so thankful. I walked down that beach into the sun thinking, man, I could get a merit badge for this if I hadn't been playing hooky. <laughs> and then I turned to God with this, well, this was a good one, right? And he nodded and he says, there are consequences for everything, son. Are you through? Trish, I had to go through everything that I'm ashamed of, everything I'm proud of. We get to re-experience and see the consequences of all that we think and say and do. Yes. I, and I want to stop you just for a moment and ask a question about this, because this is a profound part of my near-death experience and a lot of people's near-death experiences to relive the ways that we have given love to this world, basically, in the ways that we have either withheld it. And my withholding was more, I was an introvert before my near-death experience, and it was more of my thoughts and, you know, my judgments. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't bully people or... so. So I really, I stepped lightly around people. I, it's kind of strange though, after the near-death experience, when you're more extroverted, you have more of a chance to step on people's toes and to you know, say the wrong things. And so I have become very aware of my actions and their ripple effects. And you know, I make a centered conscious decision to give as much kindness and love to this world. But are you aware in certain moments where your humanness takes over and you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, I'm not behaving in a way that I'm going to like during my life review, but I'm, here I am, I'm saying this or I'm doing this. I, I become more and more conscious and aware of it uh, almost daily. And I even uh, practice a thing called two-way prayer to access spiritual wisdom within by asking questions in a journal before I go to sleep or even more before I sit to meditate. And when I come out of it, I immediately freeform unedited and answer as if my, my dear son, my dear child, this is what I've seen and felt. And as I continue to practice, I get more and more in touch with places where I have withheld or I have overstepped and recognize it. Yeah. Um, and going back and making amends, calling, asking, praying for. So what about when this happens, this happens rarely, but it does happen sometimes when someone seems to come out of nowhere and attack you, like in, in kind of threatening abusive ways, like how do you respond to that so that you're protecting yourself, but also you know, being well with the world. I, I go into a kind of posture. I remember my sister's pregnant chihuahua. She had babies. She loved them dearly. But when somebody came abusive, she'd turn into, Arr! you know, and... And I sometimes won't, you know, stand back and I say no. But I have to take a posture. I'm not willing to continue with this or put up with that. Or simply say, excuse me, uh, I'll be back when I feel more centered and worthy of working with you. Hmm. That's a really good answer because you do have to be protective of your life and the lives around you. And, you know, I've, I've seen that balance come up in classrooms, like an abusive mm. student has to be removed. You know, that student is a danger to me and to the learning of others. Or, you know, when someone is behaving that way, that behavior has to end quickly. So that's an interesting description. Well, you, you bring up a good point and at this point in my life, uh, I've been kind of handed responsibilities as a funeral director, where I work with uh, situations where 
grief expresses itself in very dysfunctional ways. And so we've had disruptive behaviors. Oh, I'm sure. And grief in dysfunctional families expresses dysfunctionally as well. It magnifies much of the unresolved uh, missing love is the the Hmm. core of it for me. And so I have to practice, you know, um, the passion of, you know, of, of a mother or father of a newborn going to whatever steps are required to protect or at least restore some sanity and tranquility in the environment that I'm in. Whether it means excusing myself or having someone else removed, as you say. Interesting. All right, so back to that, and your life review sounds particularly profound. I mean, it sounds like it really slowed down and you saw deep consequences for the smallest of actions, and that's, that's heavy. <laughs> it, it, it's, it goes a long way. I mean, here I am going through all of these, you know, um, even resentments where I withheld to some of my classmates. And, and I even remember one of these fellows was a classmate while I was at the Naval Academy and, and I would short sheet his bed. In other <laughs> words, <laughs> this, and so when you go to try to get under the covers, it doesn't work. Well, I can remember taking great pride in the fact that I could do it and not get caught. And it was uh, some 28 years later that I was able to reach out to him and just say, you know, I was real unfair and unkind, and I apologize. How did he take that? Because you never know how someone's going to take it. (laughs) Well, he said, I wonder who was the SOB who was doing that to me. (laughs) And and I I don't want to hear from you again. Oh. And I said, as you wish. Mm-hmm. But I I did what I felt I best that I could. In this life review, seeing all of the consequences, it was even down to the day before my auto wreck. I had turned in expense accounts at work because I felt I wasn't getting paid. You know, I'm working 60 hours a week and I'm only getting paid for 40. And so I embellished my expense account. And I saw in my life review, like, oh, God, even this? And the answer, again, was there are consequences. Either now or later in life or the next life, there are consequences. Are you through? And I was, oh, God, yes. And I came to the point of realizing, I said, there's no way I want to leave the, the lap of God. No way I want to, you know, remove myself from this showering bliss. So let's close this book on the floor. Let mom know I'm okay. Don't worry about me. I'm great. And no sooner did I reach down to close that book than I came to out of a two-week coma oh. with my mother at the foot of the bed. Hmm. And that was my first, and I think, um, well, my first near-death experience with most of the elements of a profound near-death experience. Yes, yes, and that life review, it, it, did, you, did you get a sense of, were you continuing some of that while in the coma, or do you think that at impact and before you got to the hospital, that's mainly where your near-death experience occurred? It's my understanding that we have the ability of stepping out of the bonds of time and space. Here it was, I had this crash, I went into the light, all I remembered was this long experience and coming to 
two weeks later. Another gentleman I worked with when I was part of the Seattle IANS was a guy who was on the second story in a construction zone. And he was working, you know, and got hit by a beam and hit him in the head and threw him over the side of the building. He literally went out of his body. And he went through much of a life review. And he had this experience and says, no, I want to stay. I want my grandchildren. I want my children who depend on me. I love my wife. I can't leave him like this. And he came to as he had an awning at the bottom. Hmm. And so it was just seconds. And uh, I know we have many folks in the near-death experience who have seconds in eternity. And for me, we have a, a perspective that this physical universe that we're in is built with you know time and space as its parameters and an organic matter we call the body that we can and do inhabit so that we might experience and express that grace and wisdom that is our creator. And this is, I'm kind of taking you back to your second near-death experience, but it's a question that I get asked a lot, even though, uh, you know, I've only lost my father and, you know, mm -hmm. gone through that experience of talking to him in the afterlife. But you know, and I'm sure every near-death experiencer gets these calls or these emails from people who have lost a child or a spouse or someone they just were not ready to lose at that moment and grief is profound and i know you went through it after having a near-death experience so that it's still profound i mean you still lose that physical connection that picking up the phone that hugging that person that you know being here in this life with that person and my heart goes out to those who have lost a child or lost someone very dear to them and my my comfort seems um, mainly to be through talking to other near-death experiencers, believe it or not, in these interviews and just talking about the light and remembering mm. what it was like for me and allowing others to share that. But I know you have particular experiences counseling and talking with lots of people in these situations. What's some of the best advice you can give to listeners who are grieving? Share your grief. I don't mean dwell in it. Don't let it consume you. And I, after I lost my wife to drowning, you know, was under the illusion, well, you know, take a stiff upper lip, you know, get over it and get back to work. Well, I didn't express my grief, and it wasn't long until I was... Uh, in the hospital with a collapsed lung. We've got to make a sound. And I love, I, I, my best teachers were the children that I work with in the leukemia ward. Because these kids, you know, cut to the chase very quickly. Most of their friends go out in body bags and they're saying, hey, let's get real. And, and they taught me, what does your grief sound like? And I don't want words, you know, I don't want things like, oh, it sounds like a tiger or, or sounds like a moon. No, if you need to you know, go underwater, like I sometimes do in the bathtub to scream, or put a pillow around yourself. An example, I'm working in, in, in the wards in Seattle and the children had a playroom with thick carpeting and beanbag chairs and waffle bats and all. And, and there was a sign from Charlie Brown, good grief, the doctor's in. <laughs> the kids had taken a crayon and said, good grief room. Mm. And they named it that. And they used that room to go to and to express their grief. And it wasn't, yeah, probably yesterday or recently I was working with another gentleman about how we look for ways to express it. Journaling is one. I love mirror work. Sometimes talking to a mirror. 
of course, Raymond Moody has got this thing called the psychomantium. You can go into a reclining position with a mirror and so forth, like the Greeks did to talk to your loved one who is no longer here, to sense a communion with them. There are you many know, ways. All of that is, is important. And I, I teared up a little as you were talking about one of them, because I was thinking about a book I read years ago that said animals have feelings. And I thought, well, duh, everybody who's had a pet knows that they have feelings <laughs> and that they grieve. But there was, you know, scientists had to study it and come to this conclusion. But there were certain animals that when they lost, you know, a a loved one, whether it's, and usually a child or a puppy or, you know, whatever, if it's a wolf, they... Mm -hmm howled you know they laid down next to that oh. exactly there was this deep wailing that they would take for a moment you know a moment of time to just express that horrible sadness and a hunter or a guy who doesn't hunt actually told me one time that he shot a deer and he saw the the you know, the, another deer that knew this deer come down and make a sound next to the body of that deer. Mm -hmm. And he said, Oh no, I won't be hunting anymore. <laughs> you know, that sound really got to him. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, let me take a deep breath with you. And, and with the people who are watching this about, we're, we're talking about grief. And give it sound. Give it expression. You know, if you want to wail, cry, pound on the floor. I, I, you know, when I get into my yoga postures, we start with what do we call it? The corpse pose. You're dead on the floor. And if yes. you're not happy with what things are going on, just pound it for a few minutes. Watch what happens if you give release to that anger that grief that sadness you can rent you know share it and it will relieve it now we never lose all of it and i love steve levine taught me that we all have a reservoir of emotions and i know growing up you know anger no no you don't get angry not in my house at least not with my dad and his commanding position but he would always you know but you could, that's the last straw. And then, bam, out would come the belt or something. Hmm. Yeah, or slam a door. And mother would say, are you through? And he'd think for a minute and he'd go and slam another one. Okay, <laughs> now I'm through. <laughs> yeah. But this reservoir, and I remember my strong dad went with me to, I think, movie of Bambi when I was a little kid. And, and of course, you know, when Bambi's as it mother gets killed or daddy gets killed, you know, I look up and my father's got tears in his eyes. Hmm. And as we're walking out of the movie, I said, are you sad, daddy? And he said, oh, no, it was just a good movie. <laughs> and if we need to have a quiet space and find YouTube experiences, find some good grief release. Yeah. And, and honor, like you said, the process, because there's a time for many different emotions connected to grief. And I remember, and this isn't the grief of losing someone, but, you know, a traumatic experience that I went to, went through, I went through a period of anger and I went to this and I describe it as what I actually did. I went to this rock quarry in San Antonio that was completely abandoned and I just screamed because I heard mm. about a philosopher once who sat at the edge of the ocean and, and screamed out his anger. And I thought, I'm just going to do this until my voice goes hoarse and I'm going to throw rocks and I'm going to be as angry as I can in this moment and let that anger flow through me. And I, it was healthy. You know, I don't see it as an unhealthy thing. I, th I think it was this moment of, okay, I'm ready for the next step now. And so expressing things is important. I agree totally. And I love the image you have because it brings back my memory of just last summer. I did a, a retreat of ministers where we all get together and we had sessions and experiences. There's a priest called Father Richard Rohr. Father Rohr has got a whole program out of, I think, New Mexico, Arizona. Anyway, on this retreat, we had an opportunity to get in touch with our grief in silence.
and drums were beating as Native American tempos worked. And we had smoke and fire. And we had the chance to do whatever we want. And I picked up a giant boulder on my shoulder and carried it around for at least a half an hour, wailing, just wailing to let go of the grief that's thick in different pockets in my lungs and in my chest. Things that I, you know, little and big, we all store up. And I don't know if I express that, how my dad would let this anger finally take over. How we sometimes let grief take over. Well, don't let it just take over. Open the door for grief to flow. Mm. Schedule time to have a good grief space in place so you can relieve that tension inside and you don't end up like I did with a collapsed lung. Thank you for saying that because that's something I've learned over time. I think I'm getting a little bit wiser, but I've given myself like five minutes or 30 minutes or yeah, set a set time to work through something. And I express it. And I've been so shocked when I call in the power of God too, in those moments to help me through that process. Yes, I have gotten over major things in five minutes and I'm like, seriously, five minutes, that's all, <laughs> you know, but I felt so much release and so much happiness and I'm sure I'd been working on it, you know, throughout my life, but it, that turning point just came in a five minute space of totally feeling it, blocking out everything and going, I'm going to be done with it in five minutes. So yeah, the, those, that's an important part is let it flow through you because it literally can. And this is, this is grief for smaller things, you know, not necessarily the loss of a child or a parent or a spouse, but you know, the, a breakup or a, you know, whatever, you know, a, a loss in life, loss of a job, you know, you can work through these things and, and be over them at some point. I'm delighted to find that almost every major city in our country has grief programs and grief centers places where we can go and share their grief. Here in Austin, there's a thing called the Christie House, where a couple who lost a daughter who was murdered on the streets of Austin found that by creating a place to share their grief, it is now, you know, in I think it's 20th year. But anybody who's listening to this, I encourage you to um, reach out and find out where our other brief expressions and places that you can go to yeah. be at a church and your Stevens ministry, whatever. Exactly. And, and even classrooms sometimes, believe it or not, creative writing and English classes, having told my near death experience story to so many of my students, obviously the students who've lost a child, even in miscarriage or, you know, early on feel moved to write about this sometimes and feel safe to write through their grief. And so I think that's been a beautiful process for me is to allow people to write through their grief and express it wherever they are in that moment to either a classroom or just to me. And yeah, you never know where you're going to find that right community, but look for it because they exist. How are we doing on time? I guess we're unfortunately going to have to wind down, but I want to ask you a couple more questions before we do your third near-death experience. So uh, what happened there? How was that different from the other two? Well, if you I mentioned to you how I had a collapsed lung and it ended up that they said, well, you know, there is um, impacted and it's full of pus and we have to go in and do surgery. Uh, I, uh, by this time I'd had so much experience being a patient. I was uh, a, challenging one. I wanted somebody to only cut out the bad part. And they said, oh no, we just removed the whole lobe. Finally, I found an expert and they said, okay. So here that I am wheeled into the operating room. And pre-op, I'd been given a, enough of the uh, medicine to make my muscles, un- I couldn't move anything. The only thing I could move was my eyes. And here they are. I'm on the the table and they're trying to put a tube down my throat. Well, of course, I'd had from the first surgery a tracheotomy and there's crooked pathways. Anyway, they're trying to put a tube down and I'm gagging. Ah! 
trying to give them a message and, and the surgeon you know hollers at the anesthesiologist his eyes his eyes cover them he's moving it so next thing i know i'm out of my body on the ceiling watching them twist and turn my body over on its side so that they could cut off cut open one of the lower ribs, spread my rib cage, and take out the infected part of my lungs. And I'm watching down here, looking at this, and thinking, oh my God, that doesn't look well at all. And then I had this thought in my mind, who's watching this? And so I have a perspective of looking back at me up there on the ceiling, looking down at me. What I see when I look up at the ceiling is this image of this short, rough, hairy, stinky man carrying a sword and having a recall, a total life recall of being one of Hannibal's favorite swordsmen, Pat going over the Alps. And I was so good with my knives, I could disembowel my opponents instead of quickly dispatching them with it over the neck. In other words, I was a mean, cruel, oppressive person. Side note, all my life growing up, I was known as Machete Eddie. They tried to make me into a swordsman at the Naval Academy, but I rejected that thinking it was too effeminate. I had to go row for the crew. <laughs> so here I have this flashback of, wow, there's this lesson. I was cruel and abusive to others. And now I get to see my body experiencing how I'd done things to others. And in that moment, I watched them throw the sheet over my body and head toward the door with the anesthesiologist saying to the surgeon, you really F that one up. And the surgeon saying, well, I'll be GD if I'll take the blame for this one. You did it. And in that instant, my body jerked and they looked at each other and screamed, oh, he's back. And I faded into the wow. black. Wow. What did you take from that? Like that one is an unusual near-death experience. It's like one more piece of past life information. and It confirmed experientially what I'd heard academically, but not really made a part of my you know, uh, real awareness. It confirmed to me that what I'd heard from others is that you know, we live more than one life. And there is this truth to the uh, word of karma and consequences. And it explains sometimes why some things happen to me presently that didn't make sense until I look at, oh, okay. And my someone abusive comes up and can't stand me. And I've always tried to be nice to them. And I have to think to myself, I might've offended them in another lifetime. And they're just wanting, want some forgiveness and retribution. Yeah, interesting. And people will argue with that, but um, I, I have a very, very strong past life memory. And I mean, it is a strong one. I remember what I looked like. I remember who I was. I remember where I lived. And I also remember like, different areas of town. So I lived in Boston. That's where you know I spent the last part of my life. And I remember a lot about that. But to end, you're so fascinating. You've had so many fascinating experiences. I, I wish uh, we had more time, but I, I would like for you to sum up. You've done many things after your near-death experiences to help others and counsel others, but what have been some of the things that you've done, either as a minister or a funeral director or sitting with the dying? Like, what If you could sum up some of your experiences that you feel that the near-death experience has helped you connect with others in deeper ways. I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about that as a closing thought. Let me grok that and kind of embrace it and put my heart around it. The greatest lesson I have learned is to love others, to find ways to serve. And especially 
to care for the elders, assisting and, and transforming. The whole reason I get into becoming a funeral director is I want to enhance how we do death and dying in our communities. And I mean that globally. I see that we're all going to die. And to find ways to acknowledge that you are more than this body, you will know the consequences of your behavior, sometimes only after you've done, finished with this incarnation. But find ways to love and serve others and give to your community, not just your family, but the community at large. Volunteer, find those who are suffering, not by intention, but by aid consequences. And in that, we will a value and a worth greater than any amount of money that one might accumulate. Oh, amen. I have to just weigh in on that. One thing I've been thinking a lot about is just how service has always enhanced my life. So I teach my students to go out into the world. And so we do service learning projects together and it bonds them. You know, they become closer friends. They get to know one another in that act. They feel happier and more optimistic about life. And I see a lot of people who go to workshop after workshop, spiritual workshop, and yet they're kind of in this hoarding mentality of, you know, they go to Costco, they fill up their, and there's nothing wrong with this, but I'm just saying that, you know, most of their lives is about themselves and spiritual communities are like one more way to consume. And I think we should be teaching that spiritual communities and spirituality should be a way to give because man, you were given so much when you were in that process of giving. It's almost as if the divine steps into you to help others. At least that's the way I've seen it. Is That's the closest I can get to God is when I'm helping other people because I'm opening myself up to that flow to help others. So I always encourage others to help others in any way that they can. I love the way you express that. And I appreciate and thank it. And I thank you for creating this opportunity and inviting me to be one of your many guests on this new venue of passing the word to the world. Yes, thank you so much. It's been awesome and you've been a wonderful guest and I can keep talking to you, but we will end. So please like and subscribe to this video and I would like to hear from you and also we will both be in Austin for the upcoming events. If you want to say anything about that before I close. This March 23rd through 25th in Austin is the gathering of a multitude of gifted and phenomenal near-death experiences. This is 2018, and I expect this video will last beyond decades. But <laughs> right. if you are hearing this before, know that there is a wonderful opportunity to come meet and experience um, a multitude, go to neardeathwisdom.com, neardeathwisdom.com. Find tickets there. Come join us. I know you'll love it. And with that, the force is with us. Bye-bye. <laughs>